Well, it happened this last week. I knew it was going to. It was only a matter of time. There's been signs for a little while now, but I thought I had a few more years. But two weeks ago on the high school mission trip, for the first time in my life, I truly felt old. <laughs> you know, I, I thought I was still with it. I thought I kind of knew, you know, pop culture and, and what the kids were up to these days. I'm, I'm only 32. Like, that's not that old. Um, but nothing makes you feel old like spending a week with a bunch of teenagers, let me tell you. Listening to their music and just kind of scratching my head at times at why they found this enjoyable. Um, Just the language that they use and trying to understand new words uh, like sus or uh, slay, and I'm sure many, many others that just went right over my head. and we've all been there, maybe whether or not we've felt old uh, necessarily, but there's probably been times where you were in a new culture, a new environment, uh, maybe like a new church. And it's that kind of unfamiliar feeling, right? Of just like, I don't know how things work here. Like, what, what are the customs? What are, what's the language that they use? What, what meaning does it take on? And, and sometimes like we can miss things. They go over our head because we don't know the context that it's in. Um, And I think we kind of find ourselves in that sort of situation today as we look at our verse. Now, we are continuing on in our sermon series called Known, uh, looking at uh, finding our identity in Christ. What does the Bible say about who we are? Uh, And our verse today comes from 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9, and it says this, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, I'm guessing many of us look at that passage and go, what on earth does that mean? I'm not Catholic. How am I a a royal priest or a holy nation? I'm just a single person. What, What does this mean? This doesn't make sense. And I think what we'll find is that the key to understanding this passage is to understand the context of the Old Testament uh, that that Peter is referring to here. Uh, And I think what we'll see is that Peter uh, is thinking big picture, and he is thinking of the church and its community of believers, not necessarily individual Christians, but obviously as members of the church, uh, it still applies to us. So, That is what we're going to look into today, so let's go ahead and pray, and we'll dive on in. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for who you are. Uh, We thank you for this great story that we are a part of, uh, and this great redemptive plan for the world that we are a part of. And so, God, I pray uh, today that you would help us to find our place within your story uh, God, I pray that you would open ears and, and uh, hearts and minds, uh, that you would speak through me, and, and uh, God, we pray that your spirit would move in this place. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so to understand what Peter is claiming here by calling us chosen royal priests and a holy nation, uh, we need to go back, all the way back to Exodus. 
Uh, so brief history lesson here of the Old Testament in case you're kind of unfamiliar with it. Uh, remember, God, you know, created the earth, Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark. We go to Abraham, uh, right? And God made a promise to Abraham uh, that he would make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants and that they would be a blessing to all nations. It's the very beginnings of God's redemptive plan for the whole world. Fast forward a long time, all right, and the Israelites, the Abraham's descendants, uh, they uh, made it to Egypt where they were enslaved, and they spent uh, years there as slaves working for Pharaoh. And then came Moses, right? God chose Moses and used Moses to rescue the Israelites. He sent the, the plagues, and uh, the Israelites ran away. God parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites escaped, and God brought them to Mount Sinai, and it's there that he gave the Ten Commandments, and, and he made a covenant with the Israelites that, that they would be his people, he would be their God, uh, and a whole long list of commandments for them to follow. And it's at that time at Mount Sinai, as God is talking to the Israelites as a, as a whole for the first time, that we find this verse uh, that I think uh, will help us understand uh, the passage in Peter today. It says this in Exodus 19, 4 to 6. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So you see here, it's this passage that Peter is referring to in his letter when he calls us as uh, calls us royal priests and a holy nation uh, and God's very own special possession. So what does that mean? How do we make uh, heads or tail of that? How do we make sense of it? Well, I think what Peter is doing here, it's my humble opinion, uh, is that he is really trying to communicate to the church that we are now a part of God's redemptive plan through which he is going to reveal himself to the world. You know, he, he made this covenant with the Israelites. If you obey me, I will do this. If you don't, then uh, bad things are going to happen. And sure enough, the Israelites did not obey God. Uh, they made it like two hours before they worshipped a calf, which is just unbelievable, right? I mean, it's like two hours. Even I can listen better than that. Um, and so the Israelites failed over and over and over again. But... Uh, that does not mean God's plan was thwarted, right? For God had a plan all along that he was going to save the world through the Israelites. It just happened to be a single Israelite he was working through. Uh, we see this uh, predicted in Isaiah 49, 6. He says, you will do more than just restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring uh, my salvation to the ends of the earth. Right? I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring uh, my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the Israelites were going to be a light to the world. Now we see God talking to his servant, predicting in Isaiah, that this servant was going to be the light to the world, the way in which God was going to bring his salvation to all of humankind. And of course, we know with our New Testament lenses that Isaiah is talking about Jesus. And this is confirmed for us in Luke 2, 25 to 32. 
Uh, Hear this story. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people, Israel. God's redemptive plan fulfilled through Jesus Christ, that he would be the light to the world. All right, so what's the point of this Old Testament history lesson? Well, I think it's this, that what Peter is doing, he is essentially comparing the church to the Israelites. That because of Jesus, because of God's redemptive plan fulfilled in Jesus, the church is now the vehicle in which God uses to reveal himself to the world. The church is how God will redeem the world and make his presence known. The church is the channel God has chosen to express his grace in this world. It's a pretty big deal. It's a big mission. And so to help us understand what this means, let's dive into each of these four statements that Peter is saying about the church. Uh, First one is this. We are a chosen people. What does it mean to be chosen? Well, what it doesn't mean is that uh, you're not special. I know it might seem like the opposite, but no, you are chosen. God chose you, but not because you are special. Not because you've done anything to earn it or deserve it. Not because you're so smart or talented or you're a really hard worker or anything like that. That's not how God works. Uh, in fact, that was true of the Israelites, and it's true for us. As we see in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 7, uh, it says this, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. But the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. For you were the smallest of nations. All right, little backhanded compliment to the Israelites. Hey, don't get so full of yourself. You're actually really tiny. You're making my job a lot harder, is essentially what, what God was saying. And then Paul picks up on this theme in the New Testament. We see it in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 26 to 29. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who they think are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God chooses things that are weak, that are small, that are worthless in the eyes of the world. What does that mean about us? I guess we're kind of weak and small and not always very smart and not always very powerful. It's kind of a backhanded compliment when you think about it. And yet it needs to be said to humble ourselves, first of all, that you are not so special, but to also encourage you that you're not special. 
You yourself know your deepest, darkest secrets. You know your failures better than anyone else. You know the things you're ashamed of or embarrassed about. God does too. And yet, he still chooses you. He's still chosen you to be a part of his redemptive plan for the world. Not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it, but because you are loved by God. God chooses us because he loves us. It's really that simple. If we go back to Deuteronomy 7, 8, uh, right after that previous verse we read, uh, it says as much, rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. Throughout the Old Testament, God pours his love out on the Israelites. Even though over and over again, the Israelites choose other gods, God still loves them. He calls them his treasure, his personal and prized possession. Uh, The scripture talks about God carrying them in his arms or in his hands or placing them at his feet. He loves them with a jealous love, a love like a father has for his son. The same is true about us. God chose you because he loves you. It is the foundation of who you are as the person. It is the starting point of your identity. You are not special. You are not amazing. You're not incredible. But you are loved by the God of the universe. And he has chosen you. It is the most true thing that could be said about you. God loves you. Once we get that right, then we can move on. But you have to start there. You have to start there, that you are only chosen because God has loved you, and God does love you. But now, chosen to do what? What are we chosen to do? Well, the next point Peter makes is that we are royal priests. What does it mean to be a royal priest? Uh, It means you are a part of an exclusive group. Now, we know what royalty is. Uh, America doesn't have a royal family like our friends over in the UK. Uh, but, you know, uh, news travels fast. Uh, and, and we were, you know, constantly, anytime there's a royal wedding, right, we're obsessed with it. We're obsessed with, uh, you know, pregnancies and, and the royal drama and all sorts of stuff, right? Because royalty is it's a big deal. Right? It means that you are either the king or the queen, or you're related to the king or the queen. Right? You have power. You have riches. Uh, it, it's, it's an exclusive thing. It's not something you can earn on your own. It has to be given to you, in a sense. Uh, but just as exclusive as royalty uh, were priests in uh, the time of the Israelites. Of the 12 tribes that make up the Israelites, only one of them could the priests come from. And even then, it wasn't the whole tribe. It was just a select few. It was an exclusive group uh, with a very important role. And that role was important because it meant that because the priests had access to the presence of God. A royal priest would have access to the presence of God. So the Israelites built a temple, uh, and inside that temple, there was a room where the presence of God literally dwelt, we're told. That was where the presence of God was. But that room was so sacred, it was so holy, uh, some random Joe could not go in there. Only the priests could go in that room. And they would go in to intercede or pray for the people on their behalf. And so uh, the priests would meet with the Israelites. They would hear their concerns, their problems, or anything else. And then they would go into the temple and uh, where the presence of God was, and they would pray for them. They would spend time in the presence of God. So what's Peter saying here? 
Well, he is saying that as a member of the church, as, uh, as a member of Christ's church, you are a part of an exclusive, important group. You are heir to God's riches and promises. It would be like uh, if, uh, you know, Bill Gates called you up and, and was like, hey, you know, uh, I just kind of randomly decided I, I want you to have access to all of my finances. So here's my credit card, my debit card, my bank account number. Uh, and also, like, you know, let's put you on, on the board of my foundation and, and you just kind of help make decisions. And, and you know, to be given that kind of access, that kind of power overnight is essentially what happens when we become a believer. But not only that, way more important than that is that when we, uh, that we now— because of Jesus, we have direct access to God. We no longer need a priest to pray for us, but rather we are invited to go into the throne room of God and, and, and pray and spend time with him and, and talk to him. Right? We don't have to wait on the outside and hope that God hears us. We know that God hears us. We are invited and welcomed in to spend time with him. The wall has been torn down. Next, uh, as we move on from the priests, we have what does it mean to be a holy nation? Uh, And fortunately, the Old Testament makes this pretty clear for us. Uh, We see in Leviticus 20, uh, 26, it says this, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. To be holy means to be set apart and different. This is literally what holy means, to be set apart, to be different. The Israelites were chosen, and they, have, they had a special purpose, and therefore they were supposed to be different from the other nations around them. Most of uh, like the beginning of the Old Testament, it's just a long list of commandments of the rules that God wanted the Israelites to follow. And it wasn't to make their life miserable. It wasn't to try to trip them up. It was to set them apart from the nations around them. It was to make them into this special holy group that followed uh, the principles of God so that other nations would see them and be like, what is going on over there? What do they have? Like, there must be something at work because that is a holy people. Uh, And in the same way, that is what we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be different from the people around us, from the culture around us. And in order to do that, what it means to be holy then is it means we need to be focused on our own behavior and obedience. Focused on our own behavior and obedience. You'll notice that God did not tell the Israelites, hey, make sure Egypt is keeping the Sabbath over there, okay? I'm really concerned about that. You, you go talk to Pharaoh if he's not following it. No, he didn't do that. It was all about Israelites. This is what you need to do. And if, if you see your fellow Israelites aren't following this, hold them accountable. Keep them in line. Keep them holy. The same thing applies to the church. We should be more concerned about our own, the the big church, our our own little church here. We should be concerned about whether or not we are are obeying God, whether or not we are following his principles. I, I thought Scott McKnight in his commentary on this passage put it so well when he said this. The primary business of the church is to be concerned with itself its own identity, and its own formation, not in terms of how it can either counter or enhance the state. The primary mission of the church is to grow as a spiritual community and and to declare the virtues of God. Now, this probably seems counterintuitive, right? This seems like, wait, I thought we were supposed to go out and evangelize and share the gospel and and all that, and that's true. But here's the thing. in order to do that, we need to be operating from a foundation of God's holiness. 
we, we need to make sure our own life, our own church, has it together. Right? It's, that, it's the oxygen mask model. Right? If you've ever been on an airplane, you know this. Uh, they give this spiel before every flight. That, in the event of emergency and the mask come down, what are you supposed to do? You put your mask on first. Right? Because if you start trying to help the people around you, you're going to pass out. In order to be effective, you need to make sure you are connected to the source of life. And then you can help other people do the same. The same applies to the church. If we are not connected to our source of life, we will never be effective in reaching a lost world. So often the modern church gets this wrong. We we so focus on the decay of our our society and culture, we want to judge and condemn and criticize and demand that non-believers follow a Christian code of ethics and morals. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, our own house is falling apart. There's rot at the very core. Have you seen the scandals that have come out of the church for centuries now? It's nonstop over and over again. If we spent more time concerned about the health of our churches, that would be a far more effective witness than anything else we are doing. Now, I just want to say, I think ACC is doing an excellent job. I didn't say this first service, and I realized I should probably clarify. I'm talking about church with a capital C, Right? Big church throughout the entire world, not, not our church. I think we're, we're, doing, we're doing a good job. But obviously, uh, it, it, you have to be intentional. You've got to be intentional. And that means spending time in Scripture. It means uh, spending time in prayer. It means being here at church. A holy nation cannot be a nation without its citizens. The church needs you, and you need the church. It is how we get connected to our life source. So we are to be holy, to be set apart, to be different than our culture, concerned about things our culture is not concerned about so that they might see something is going on here, something amazing. And then finally, uh, the last point Peter says is this, that we are God's very own possession. What does it mean to be God's very possession? Well, the first thing it means is this, you are not your own. You are not your own. God created you. He chose you. He's made you an heir. He's given you direct access. He's forgiven you. He sent his son to die for you. You belong to him. You belong completely to God. But more than that, God also calls you his masterpiece, his handiwork. He calls you his prized possession, the thing he's the most proud of the thing he loves the most. And when we begin to understand this, then and only then we can truly understand our identity. Your identity is found only in God. It is our starting point. It is our ending point. Trying to understand yourself apart from God is a futile experience. You will never fully figure it out. You will always be left wanting more, left feeling like there's a hole inside of you, left trying to figure out what is this life supposed to be about. It would be like a plane trying to fly itself with no pilot. It's like trying to build Ikea furniture without the manual. (laughs) Hang on, that's a frustrating experience even with the manual. Um, It's like a board game, trying to learn how to play a board game uh, but without the instructions. Right? Maybe you'd figure it out, parts of it, and you'd kind of make up your own rules along the way, and you'd have an okay time, but it's going to be a frustrating experience. It's going to be difficult, and you're never going to unlock the full potential of the joy of the game. 
trying to find your identity apart from God will be a frustrating experience and you will never unlock the full potential of joy you can have in this life. Because God does want you to be filled with joy. Not that things will always be happy or easy or anything like that, but he does want you to have life and life to the fullest and to experience that joy. And we can do that when we begin to understand who we are in light of God. So these are the four things that help describe the identity of the church. It declares who the church is. But to wrap up our time together, we need to ask, so what? All right, let's say we're doing it all right. We're connected to the oxygen source, right? We're spending time in the Word. We're going to church. We're on fire for the Lord. Uh, we're obeying what Scripture tells us to do. Uh, all that we are, we are, we're just, we're in really good shape. Now, what are we supposed to do? Well, let's go back to our verse and focus on the second half. So, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result... You can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into the wonderful light. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. How? How do we do this? Uh, As I mentioned— Two weeks ago, I uh, spent a week uh, with our high school students out in Virginia uh, working with a nonprofit called Mercy Drops. Mercy Drops, it's a dream center uh, that provides care to their community. They go out to reach uh, those in poverty, those who are homeless, uh, those who are hurting. Uh, they provide food, uh, clothing, um, community, fellowship, and love, right? They tell people about Jesus after they have meet their physical needs. It's a great organization. We had a wonderful time working with them. And by far, the most impactful day uh, was when we got to go into one of the local neighborhoods called Swanson Homes. Swanson Homes is not a safe neighborhood. Uh, It's... uh, Apartments are boarded up. They're actually in the process of trying to shut down. The city's trying to shut down uh, the whole uh, neighborhood uh, by giving people $1,500 just to move, just to go away. They just want to be done with it. Um, And so it would not have been safe for us to go by ourselves into this neighborhood, but because of the good work Mercy Drops is doing, because of the relationships they have built— it was safe. They go into this neighborhood every single week and have never, for years now, and they've never had an incident because uh, when the drug dealers or the gang members see them coming, they'll leave. They'll close up shop for a few hours and let Mercy Drops do their thing because they, they see the good it's doing. Uh, and so uh, the day looked like this. In the morning, we went over there and it was a ghost town. There was not a single person out and about to see. Uh, but we went around and we knocked on every door just to tell them, hey, we're coming back in two hours. We're going to have water games for the kids. Uh, we're going to play some football, basketball, uh, all sorts of fun stuff. And we'll have some groceries uh, for the parents. Um, and we, we left. And, and it was a quiet car ride home. Or back to our home base, rather. Because... Like I said, there was no one around, and the people who opened the doors would usually only open it halfway. Uh, We'd see kids open it by themselves with a look of fear in their eyes, with a look of sadness. It was a heavy experience. But when we came back in two hours and, and the bus rolled into the parking lot there, slowly but surely, the kids started coming out three or four at first, and then seven or eight. And I think by the end, we probably had 30 kids running around. And for two hours, we had a blast. 
so many smiles, so much laughter, uh, so, such a fun, incredible time. For two hours, uh, because of Mercy Drops, we were able to bring a little bit of hope, a little bit of light in the midst of darkness. But sure enough, when we gave uh, the holler that we were about to leave and we started packing up, all the kids started going back inside. By the time we left the parking lot, it was a ghost town again. And as uh, we were packing up, I happened to be talking to one of the moms who lives in the neighborhood. Her son was out playing, and she turned to me and said, yeah, he's got to go back inside. Um, She goes, he wants to play outside more, but I won't let him. Uh, His brother was shot just over there last week. It was just a drive-by shooting in broad daylight. It's a dark place. So much brokenness and violence. And yet, for those two hours, Mercy Drops brought a little bit of hope. that This isn't the way it has to be. They brought a little bit of relief to the darkness. They brought a little bit of God's presence into this neighborhood. Now you tell me, would it have been effective for them to stand in the middle of that neighborhood with a big megaphone and just yell out for two hours, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent of your sins. Turn to God. You have to know God. Stop doing these evil things. No, I don't think so. I don't think they would have reached a single person. They probably would have gotten hurt pretty quickly in the process. But they were the hands and feet of Jesus by going and loving people. And that is what it means to show people the goodness of God. That Christians should be instigators of hope in a hopeless world. We should be instigators of hope in a hopeless world. That everywhere we go, we are bringing just a little bit of light, a little bit of love, and a little bit of hope. It feels like we live in a pretty hopeless world at times, right? You watch the news, read, uh, see it on the internet. It, it's tough. It's a dark, dark time. And so often, I hear this from Christians when they are confronted with the evils of the world, with the great problems of the world, right? Whether it's, it's systemic racism or whether it's uh, the mass shootings we see or whether it, it's the sexual assaults that, that are persistent throughout society or, or child poverty or, or whatever, you know, name your issue, whatever it is. So often what I hear from well-meaning and well-intended Christians is simply, oh, those people just need Jesus, None of this would happen if people just turned to God. And they're not wrong, but it's not all that helpful either. It's a Sunday school answer to a pretty big problem. Right? If I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me, hey, you have cancer, you should get that treated, and stops there, kind of a worthless doctor, is he not? Doesn't do me any good. If my neighbor comes over to me and he says, hey, my basement's flooding, can you help me get as much as I can out of it? And I tell him, I don't think you have a flooding problem. I think you have a leaky pipe problem. Try buying better pipes next time. It's not very helpful. It's pretty, pretty awful. And yet, when confronted with the great evils of the world, with the great darkness in the world, so often the church's response is, mm, you should read your Bible more. It's not helpful. We should be instigators of hope by by going into the darkness and loving people, carrying them, not bringing judgment or criticism or or condemnation, but rather meeting them where they're at. They don't know better. You do. So often I hear this from people, and I just want to say, man, you're right. Like, they need Jesus. What are you doing about it? 
We should be instigators of hope. We, and listen, we're not going to solve all the world's problems, right? We're not, we're not going to bring light to every corner of the earth, but you can bring light to your corner of your community. How are you bringing light into your job, into your family, with your kids, with your parents, with your cousins, your siblings you don't get along with very well? How are you bringing light into the workplace, into this church, into whatever it is? What are you doing to bring hope? Are you different, right? When, when people see you coming at your job, are you different than everyone else? Do they, are they happier coming because you're bringing a little bit of relief to the hopelessness? You're bringing a little bit of light? You're bringing a little bit of joy? Or... Are you just like everyone else, complaining about the darkness, joining in on the gossip, the slander, the judgment, whatever it might be? That is the question each and every one of us has to ask ourselves. Are we bringing light? Are we just joining in on the darkness? It does no good to complain about the dark being dark. It's what darkness is. It does do some good to ask Why can't the light be a little brighter in the room? And so, this is my call and my encouragement to each and every one of us and to myself personally. I have so much I can improve on and grow in this area. But as chosen people, as royal priests, as a holy nation, the church is called to be a place where the presence of God meets the world. We are called to be different from the world not care about power and control and culture wars and and all these other nonsense that gets in the way. We're called to do what Christ has already done in this world, to follow his example by bringing hope and light in the darkest of places, meeting people where they're at, having meals with them, caring for them, loving on them the way that God does. We are called to be faithful to a kingdom, but a kingdom full of love, grace, justice, and forgiveness. We are called to shine light in the darkest of places. Are we up for it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not given up on us. We thank you for your church, for this church, for the good work you are doing in it. And God, I pray that your church would grow in its obedience of you would grow in our holiness, that that the church throughout the world would grow in its passion for being more like your son. And through that, that we would spread our light to the world, that through that people would come to know of the love and salvation found only in you. God, I pray for each and every person in this room that you would open our ears, open our eyes uh, this week to the hurt around us, around us. We pray that you would put it on our hearts to bring a little bit of hope, that we would take the initiative. We would get outside of our comfort zone and do what you have called us to do, to show people the goodness of God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.